Welcome. To those of you who aren't here regularly, welcome to Holy Communion. We're delighted to have you here. Uh, I'm going to do a very brief introduction because the real introduction belongs to Rudy Nickens. Rudy Nickens, how long have you been a member here? 20 years. Rudy's been here for 20 years. Uh, Rudy's been a longtime part of Holy Communion and a big force for justice, uh, for taking care of one another, uh, for anti-racism and diversity work in our city and in our state. Uh, I was really, really pleased when Rudy said yes to being on the vestry, uh, or for running for vestry to be elected by the body, um, and it has been a real gift to have him on the vestry the last, what, two years? Three years. Forever. Yeah. We're, we're, we're going to just keep co-opting him, but it's a real gift to have Rudy in leadership. Um, I met Starsky Wilson the first time, um, not too long after I moved here to St. Louis. I moved to St. Louis in 2014 uh, to be with my husband Ellis. Uh, I was serving at the time on the staff of the presiding bishop. I moved in January and then in August Michael Brown was killed. Uh, and I met Starsky Wilson through uh, working with some folks at Christ Church Cathedral and Mike Kinman and showing up at uh, protests led by the Metropolitan Clergy Coalition. And I have been impressed with uh, the Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson's leadership in this city in those days and in the years since then, and it is a real privilege to welcome you to our church. Uh, I'm not going to give a lot of Starsky's bio because I want to let Rudy do that. So if you all would only welcome Rudy Nickens to his church and Starsky Wilson to our church. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I want to, I'm not going to get, up to get a lot of Starsky's professional bio because It's impressive. Uh, the Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson, who recently completed his, his uh, doctoral degree from, from, from Duke University, so is now officially Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson, who was ordained in the United Church of Christ and has served, um, as he spoke in the 8 o'clock service, served um, at St. John's Beloved Church on North Grand for 10 years, and who's um, also the the CEO, President CEO of the Deaconess Foundation, which is um, no small job, I can tell you. And the Deaconess Foundation, of which I'm a, a trustee, um, is just proud to have him at the helm. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna point out one of the persons in the room, Cheryl Walker, who, um, who, who, was, who was a trustee of the Deaconess Foundation and now chairs the, the Deaconess Center who was um, the person who I think helped guide the foundation along with Starsky when she was board chair, along with Starsky, into a position where in that professional organization they made a commitment to addressing racial equity as a priority in the foundation's work. And everything the foundation does, is um, every grant, every grantee, every organization that we support, um, is, is uh, trained and taught and understands that racial equity is a principle and a vision and a value that the foundation under Starsky's tutelage has been has, is, is committed to. And there's probably no coincidence that years before, sometime before Michael Brown's murder, the foundation made this commitment. 
and, made, and did this training and invested this into its leadership and into its values. So at the time when the Ferguson uprisings happened, um, because of these two people and the team around them, the foundation was ready to support Starsky, release Starsky from the day-to-day -day operations of leading this major foundation and, and support him to serve in the role that he talked about at 8 o'clock as he's one of the two co-chairs of the Ferguson Commission. So one of the things that I think all of us is to know is that you don't know what you want to be called to do. You never know what's out there. Who knew that one, Michael Brown would be yet another black person who was killed in a state-sanctioned murder, and two, um, that Ferguson would become one of the epicenters of unrest for the, for the world. We couldn't have predicted that, right? It doesn't matter what's going to come. What, 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 happens, what happens is you should be ready for whatever comes. You should do what you need to within your organization, within your sphere of influence, wherever you are. And, and that's one of the reasons that we're lucky enough to have Starsky be able to get out into the streets and the boardrooms and the meeting rooms and do the things that, that he did. So I just want to start with a really, really big thank you to Starsky for, for what he did. And I want to thank you for the word today. So I, I, I have this friend named Gary who irritates me like no other. And I love like no other. And so he's a, one of my sort of, you know, people in your life that you want who always are checking, keeping you on the right path, making sure you're thinking, don't let, don't let things up early. So Gary's post, Facebook post to me yesterday, to many people yesterday was, if you are a church-going Episcopalian, and hear the gospel below tomorrow without a sermon about social justice, immigration, racism, climate change, or greed, why do you still go? Okay. <laughs> wow, right? Oh. Right? So I'm just going to send him a link to Starsky's sermon. <laughs> I said, this is why I go to the church that I go to, because it is a value that we, that we, that we carry, and the prophetic moment of having that happened on this day with this man bringing the word that he described. I, I greatly, greatly appreciate it. So now I have to be friend Gary. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was gone. So now I get to keep getting another friend. Um, Starsky, um, I asked a couple people to, to uh, you know, plant some questions out there if, if, if need be. But I know you don't need them. I know that, that you can just talk. Um, so, Five years later. Um, but it's not over. And I like what you said about we're not posters. One, Ferguson, the Zippo, the town, the city still exists. And two, one of the things I loved about your leadership of the commission was you made it clear that this was not about Ferguson. This was about our whole community, our whole society, our whole region. Um, so give us a couple of. Um, Start with a couple of things that you're pleased about. Tell us a couple of things that you think we have moved. Um, I like what you said in your, in, your, in your sermon this morning. So give us a couple of things that you can that you can show as racial progress in our region as a result of the last few years. Uh, thank you. Um, in the interest of the folks in the back, I'll stand for a moment. Um, so thank you, Ruth. Thank you, Mike, for the opportunity to share. Thank all of you for, for being here, uh, being part of this conversation, literally being in this room and also being in this place that cares so much about these things that it gives space 
uh, to this conversation. Um, I am, uh, having been a pastor for 10 years, uh, I am regularly reminded that the church is a voluntary institution, an association that people can choose, and there are a lot of them, so they don't have to choose yours. So <laughs> I'm here. Um, I am uh, also invited again to Cheryl um, because of her grace and leadership. It's one thing to know, talk about positional authority a little bit this morning, it's one thing to believe that you have the support of your institution um, to go forth and do, do this work. It's another thing when you're out of the protest to look and see your board chair in one of those shiny green hats, they're really cheap green hats, yeah. <laughs> that the legal observers had to make sure that protesters were safe. It's another thing for that same board chair who's an attorney to decide, out of the eyes of many, uh, most didn't know this, um, that she would serve as a voluntary counsel to the Ferguson Commission. So at no moment was I alone uh, in that, and no moment was it about a board vote at one point in time, um, but rather we had the occasion and I had the benefit of us journeying together. Uh, and for that I thank God and thank you. Um, what about then? Things that have changed, with the recognition that only a few things can change in five years. Um, only a few things can change. Um, suit sizes can change, they somehow get tighter. <laughs> how they shrink in the closet, but this happens. It's going to happen in, only in five years. Um, my sons will tell you that gray can pop up in father's chin in five years. Uh, but for a community that is wrestling with the realities of racist institutions that have grown over years, racist ideas that have shaped our identities and understanding, only so much can change in five years. And by that measure, with that understanding, I think some critical things have changed. And so I'll speak to them uh, as a good black preacher from the South who was first ordained Baptist can with alliteration. Um, <laughs> The three critical things I think that have changed uh, helpfully for us uh, in this region have been our conversation, our capacities, and the courts. Uh, our conversation. Uh, one of the things I enjoyed doing in the first few years, um, uh, actually the first couple of years immediately uh, after the uprising, was going back into the philanthropic settings where I served because of my position at the Eagerness Foundation and copying for my colleagues a copy of a report called Grant Making with the Racial Equity Lens uh, to initiate new conversation among us. I liked copying that original report because it was dated 2007. And so I enjoyed and appreciated in 2017 sharing a decade-old report about where philanthropy across the US was moving to apply a racial equity lens to its work with my colleagues in St. Louis, who, by the way, in 2014 were named, we were named by Charity Navigator Magazine in their annual metro market survey, the most charitable metro region in the country. Yet, for my colleagues in philanthropy, grant making with the racial equity lens, a 10-year-old report was fresh and new in 2017. The fact that we're having conversations like this, the fact that over the course of time, our institutions felt it important to demonstrate, to show, and to deliver, to at least frame a case for how they were addressing 
more than anything else, I like this language, it comes up a lot, how they were on the journey of racial equity, the fact that people believed they needed to have these conversations, they were beginning to have them, and were resourced by some common set of definitions is a critical advancement. That is not far enough, but should be honored as something that in five years we have gotten done, and we've got to keep doing. So our conversation has changed. We're using new rhetoric, new terms. Uh, we've got a new appreciation. Our capacity has changed. That most charitable region that we found ourselves in that has an outsized United Way, one of the largest in the country, I think the third largest in the country, even though we're about 17th in metro size. Um, this metro region that has the number one, the first five-star Urban League affiliate in the country, this metro region that has Washington University that literally has more money than God. I have God has confirmed that Washington University in St. Louis has more money than she has. <laughs> and so, with these deeply embedded, supported institutions, one of the things that we underfund, that we undersupport, is capacity for advocacy, organizing, public policy work, power shifting, and mobilization that is required to sustain tension and conversation around things like racial equity that builds power among people who are marginalized and oppressed no matter which systems they are oppressed by. And what I've seen over the course of the last five years is seeing some support changing. Some of it because of the rigorous commitment of young people uh, who are going to change the world whether we like it or not. One of the things I learned, I, I love this, it's actually um, Pastor David the New, First Congregation Church in West Grove, uh, there's a point in his ministry where he got deeply, uh, 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 deeply uh, compelled by the disciples and began to study the disciples. And one of the things that he did as he taught this in the life of that, that congregation there at West Grove is he honed in on this passage of scripture where the disciples of Jesus come into uh, the temple to make sacrifice and the sacrifice that they come to make is a sacrifice that is equivalent for two adults. So if you were an adult, you had to make certain sacrifices. So the sacrifice they made was for two adults. All the disciples sacrificed for two adults. And it begins to wonder, what's up with this? You can say, oh, we can study the scriptures. You recognize that part of what was going on was Jesus was of age to need to make sacrifice. Peter, as the elder, was of age to make sacrifice. The rest of the disciples are youth group. Jesus is the youth minister who wants to turn the world upside down and decides in order to do that to bring closest to him people who are not yet deeply embedded in the establishment such that they don't wear long robes, they don't like the big piece of chicken or the nice place at the banquet. Rather, they are marginal enough, don't have enough voice that they're going to try to protect the system, but rather with a youth group that we have come to call the 12 disciples, Jesus comes and turns the world upside down. That's Bible. Part of the capacity that we have built is young people who didn't want our money, literally, fought against what they call the nonprofit industrial complex. <laughs> didn't want the resources, didn't come for resources, but understood their lives to be on the line when they saw Michael Brown lying on the ground. And so they have built institutions and organizations like Action St. Louis. They have built out whole programs 
uh, like uh, programs in midwifery that we find in Ferguson today with the resources of their own ingenuity, their own commitment, they have built organizations, and we have come along finally to begin to support them. And so that kind of social infrastructure has been built in the last five years in ways that we not had before. I said it this way, I'm sorry for the long Bible thing, I'm gonna come back to this. I said on a political standpoint, um, early on in the week um, leading up between uh, the uprising when we had our first convening on this matter on the Saturday after, on August 16, 2014, I was in conversation back and forth with Mike Jones about who? Mike Jones, sorry, that's a hip hop reference. Um, <laughs> Mike Jones, political leader in this community, Mike said to me, I was in Durham because I was working on this uh, doctor program at Duke, I was talking to him on the phone, asking what should be done, what he thought, he's a counsel to me in ways that Rudy is a counsel to me and Cheryl is a counsel to me. Uh, and he said, you know, part of the problem is in this town, and this, this is Mike, this is Mike, this is Mike. He said, the problem is in this town, there ain't, I'll go again, Mike. There ain't a white boy in this town who thinks that if he kills a black boy in the middle of the street, that there's anybody he got an answer to. Yeah. Yeah. It was a power calculus, right? And so part of what he was suggesting is there needed to be some power built so that there was some accountability around the realities in which systems act upon our young people. And what needed to happen was there needed to be a shifting, a sifting, uh, of what organizations were. Part of why that was the case, and this is where I came to understand it. I said, part of why a police officer can kill an 18-year-old black boy in this town and think that he doesn't have to answer for it is because in 2014, there was not one, let the church say one. One. There was not one person who got paid to get up every day and dedicate their full 40, 50, 60-hour work week to building power for black people. There was not one full-time paid professional organizer dedicated to building power for black people in St. Louis in 2014. Metropolitan statistical area of 2.8 million people, there wasn't one person whose job it was to help build power among one of the most historically disenfranchised groups in American history and those who have been acting on by the Team 4 plan, those who have been acting upon by marginalization in the healthcare system in St. Louis for all as long as they've been here. I've only been here 19 years, but I know it's been happening before I got here. There wasn't one. Our capacities have changed. Now there are several, and there are organizations dedicated to that purpose. Finally, uh, the courts have changed. Um, I won't go into it go into this a lot. If you want numbers on this, follow the Twitter feed from our Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, who tried to take credit for all of this. Um, which means he ain't learned the lesson that it's about contribution, not attribution, and that one single actor doesn't get all of this stuff done. But you can run the numbers and see uh, all of the courts that have diminished and how they take money from traffic fines, uh, this great analysis of the debtors' prisons that we have, particularly in St. Louis County, that was done and lifted by our city defenders with a well-placed, well-timed white paper. They were doing the paper, they were doing the study already before this moment. That's why, as Rudy said, and I translated uh, into more hip-hop language, if you stay ready, you ain't got to get ready. Because they were doing this work, paying attention to poor people in the, in the uh, legal systems in our community, they had a white paper ready when the New York Times wanted to pay attention. And they framed the issue. And then the same people that Eric Schmidt takes credit for all of those municipalities cutting their traffic fines uh, in half 
or, or cutting them by 70%, they sued all of those people. So it wasn't about Senate Bill 5, we were proud of that, we were helping get voice of that, but the courts have shifted and changed in how they honor take revenue to create our municipal system. I think those are the critical areas where we've seen the most change in our conversation and our capacity and in the courts. Wow, thank you, Sturcy. Well, I'm sort of doing this Sturcy introduction in, in bits and pieces. So, um, my, my, in the previous life, my job was executive director of the St. Louis Black Repertory Company. And, and my first hire was Sturcy Wilson. And he served, in, he served as the director of institutional development, institutional, institutional progress. He was that guy. So it's like my number two guy, right? And so he was also um, doing youth ministry at Greater Marcomo. So youth ministry at Greater Marcomo at the time. He, his wife um, uh, was a, was in dental school, so he was working full time, and she was going to school. And, you know that thing: somebody got to work, somebody got to go to school. Trade off later. With with you know, with a plan that when 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 she got her her her, her dental school, then that he would get to go to the seminary. So I went to his church one day when he was when he was doing the youth leadership, you know, doing the preaching for the youth service today. I went one day because you know it's my guy, this is thing. I went there and um, and I listened to him preach, and I got to work the next day. I said, Well, you can't work for me no more. <laughs> I can't be your boss. <laughs> and so you know that's how that's that's been things shifting. Me. It was like, okay, I get to follow your lead. Because you see how he corrected me, or he showed me, like, you got to talk in hip hop language, you know, you can't be old and stuff. <laughs> but I got the correction first. Do we know them? So, um, one of the things that I really wanted to ask you to do, I know there's some questions specifically about Ferguson, but one of the things I want to ask you to do is to, is to define and describe why disruption, protest is so patriotic. Yeah. Um, I'm going to wrestle a little bit. Um, I do believe it's indeed patriotic that kind of the story, and I'm not a historian, um, but the story of American progress is the story of people pushing up against systems, raising questions and casting a vision for something greater than what it is. Um, which is why, quite frankly, I think the, um, the American pulpit is so important, particularly uh, the pulpits of marginalized communities and the voices thereof. This eschatological hope that is America, right? This, this nation that is built not based upon tribe, or geography, really, but an idea, right? It is, it calls for an ongoing and progressive conversation about what the idea means now, right? There's some other text today. That you can figure out science, you can figure out meteorology, but you can't figure out how to interpret the gospel for your context, Jesus said. This requires an ongoing wrestling with the idea, the original idea, and the context of the setting of the idea. 
right? We constructed these words. Stain the ground. Kelly Brown does. Wrestles with the concepts and the original constructs of the people who had the idea. The folks who had the idea that it's America were really trying to center, and they were supported, a kind of matter, to U.S. pastors in the Northeast, New England. They were wrestling with ideas that were Eurocentric myths. They were embedding them in unhelpful, unhealthy Christian ideals of chosenness and lauding them and centering themselves in that conversation. So I said that to say, to be faithful to the idea of a community that, of a country that wrestles back and forth between two themes of liberty and equality, which don't always go together. Call for people who are willing to bum rush the room and take the table every now and then so that we can reinterpret the context of the conversation. Because y'all know, because y'all good Bible study students, y'all come to adult education and all that, because you come to the forum between worship services. Everybody don't do that. You all know that you can't just read the words on the page in the scripture, but you got to read the context around the text in order to understand what's really going on. And so when we start reading the context around what was going on with the casting of the idea of America, then we get troubled and realize, hey, we're, excuse me, um, we're the sisters. Yeah. Yes. We start reading the context of the text and say, well, hold on, um, did the brother get to stay in the room after he bring coffee to y'all? And it is patriotic to continue to do that work in a country who set up this K-12 system to educate people for citizenship. Yes. I'll say that again, because that was really provocative, y'all missed it. <laughs> Set up this K-12 system, including kindergarten, and innovation that was planted for the first time with public support in St. Louis, to educate people to be good citizens, yes. not to be peak cogs in the workforce machine of capitalism. K-12, not a workforce development tool but rather something to prepare people for citizenship. K-12, we were ripping out civics education and putting in STEM education, telling my son he's supposed to be an engineer when he's actually really excited and delighted to wrestle with ideas and civic infrastructures such that I got to intervene and tell him you ain't got to be no engineer. You can work with ideas and liberal arts as a way of understanding the entire world. Why is it patriotic? Because faithfulness to the idea of America requires wrestling with ideas. Now, I want to go somewhere else because I don't think patriotism is always helpful. That's why I had to, I, I, was, I, was, I was hurting to get into the answer. I'd like to talk about why it's faithful for people of faith. Why engagement in protest is faithful discipleship. It is faithful discipleship because we do not simply serve a meek and mild Jesus who comes in a manger, a trough that we have somehow like elevated to. Oh, we think of the manger, it's like, oh, elevated, it's like, that's a trough, dude. He's an unhoused baby who ended up taking up 
on what would be under a highway passage. And his mother got access to the supports of the system as they have him among the animals. That's the dude we follow. That dude who, I cut this out of the last sermon, maybe I got enough time to put it in the next one. <laughs> who lived a life that in three years got him murdered. That challenged the system both through the witness of the community that he gathered and who he chose to have dinner with and who he chose to be exemplars of the kingdom. Broke women who ain't got nothing but a little bit to put in the collection plate. So the sermon for him begins to be about her, not the people who wore the nice robes. In his public articulation of what God desired for the world, he cast a vision that was a direct critique to what was coming from Caesar and Rome. And that work, that anti-racist, that anti-establishment, that anti-system work got him killed. So my question is, how is one faithful to that kind of witness and ministry and safe? My question is, can one be a faithful disciple of Jesus? Not Christian, because we perverted that term. Can one be a faithful disciple of Jesus and a follower of one who was killed by the state without every now, without having a record? Over the last five years, one of the people who has become, I knew of his work, I followed him on stages and I read of him in books, but he has become a mentor and support is Alan Aubrey Bosak. He once preached a sermon in my hometown in Dallas, Texas, at a convening of clergy, where he asked the question, reflecting on um, appearance narratives in the New Testament, where are your wounds? Telling the story of when we might find ourselves face to face with the Almighty, burned by the flames of the presence of God, facing two questions. When we meet God without kinds of scars from battle, where are your wounds? And wondering if we do not have wounds, if we do not have scars from fights against oppression, having to wrestle with the second question, was there nothing worth fighting for? I think it is faithful to wrestle with systems, to engage in protests, because Jesus was, as many have said, as was lifted in a prayer in our last foundation board meeting, Jesus was a protester. If he was, should we not be? If we are not, are we faithful? If he was killed by the state, shouldn't we at least be on paper somewhere?
how did we affect the state? How did we affect the nation? How, how is what happened here um, shown up in the last five years? Um, what difference has it made? And what, what, uh, what can you see that's, that's bigger than just our region? Yeah, this is a good place for the other side of that Kennedy quote that we made racist progress. And, and, and you know, it's ambiguous. So a couple of things. Now, clearly, um, people talk about Black Lives Matter. And I encourage you to read. Um, part, of, part of what I've said as part of my charge is to help helping people who want to decolonize their libraries. Um, so I encourage you to read books like When They Call You a Terrorist by Patrice Cullors. Um, uh, to read books like Unapologetic by Charlene Carruthers and a black queer feminist ethic. Um, she, by the way, was trained right here at the Brown School before going to found the uh, BYP 100. Uh, I encourage you uh, to read uh, Ashes in the Fire uh, by Darnell Moore. And I use those poles to begin to talk about these rivers. Um, so these uh, young black queer people, all three um, that I've named, Two of them helped to lead, and they coordinated from East Coast and West Coast, Patrice and Darnell, um, the Ferguson Tree of Life. Um, that was also homeless, um, just days before, 24 hours before, they began to, to, uh, to get in cars to come here, where they mobilized by the end of August that year. Right? So there wasn't a commission. Commission didn't have its first meeting until December. Before Labor Day, Right, so within three weeks, um, the BLM network, which was not yet, it was already, but it was not yet, kind of like the kingdom of God. It was an idea, a co-creation, a hashtag, online. It was a network of people talking about stuff, but not an organized entity. Within three weeks, they mobilized more than 600 people from the U.S. and Canada to come to St. Louis. And not just any old folk, they put out a call. A call that some people just in the interest of coming, I found out I was in Pasadena last week. They called for lawyers, journalists, um, artists, they called for um, organizers, but people who could tell the story, people who owe healers, people who could provide somatic support and healing space, people who could go forth and tell the story, and people who could provide legal support to folks on the ground. It's a very intentional call. Uh, I ran into a sister by the name of Jasmine, who I met that weekend a couple of weeks ago again in uh, Pasadena uh, at, at uh, All Saints, the church where Mike Kidman now serves. Jasmine said she lied and called herself a community organizer just so she could make it. <laughs> <laughs> she came out with the group in LA. And so part of what this movement gave, when it gave the first mass mobilization for what became the Black Lives Matter network of chapters, international network of chapters, began to build infrastructure across the country and the nation um, for black-led community organizing that was not all black. I told people all the time, it was multiracial, it was multi-faith, it was multi-ethnic. It just happened to be led by young black people. And so we have had the ripple effect from a national standpoint of helping to build infrastructure for the movement for black lives. We've had the impact across the nation. This happened in other places before it happened here, of passing laws for police oversight and accountability and transition to the courts. I think that first uh, first 18 month period, there was something like 20 laws in 20 different states that were passed even before here, while we were still wrestling the documents. 
progress. Also challenges and things that we also created that we didn't pay attention to as much. Um, one of the ripple effects in the state, well, I'll just say locally, fundraising for the local police foundation increased more than 50% within the 12 months after, immediately. Right? Um, we had the effect of supporting um, and building infrastructure for campaigns for quote-unquote public safety. I put that in quotation because we have equated public safety with policing in ways that I think are unhelpful and need to be reimagined. I'm glad that people like the Coalition Against Police Crimes and Repression are leading us in re-envisioning and reimagining public safety. But passing laws, including in the city and in the county, to add taxes to put more money into policing. We have had the impact of investing more in the system of oppression and policing of black bodies and occupation of black and brown communities. We give more to that system now than we did in 2014 we began to talk about how it was a system that was both corrupt, quite frankly, we keep seeing how it's corrupt. Yeah, yeah. I pick up the paper any given day. This week, it was a story about um, two prosecutors in the circuit attorney's office who covered up the fact that a police officer just decided to beat the hell out of somebody. And then they covered it up. Yeah. Young people said the whole damn system is guilty as hell. And so we've had the impact of investing more in that system through property taxes, not just in the city and county in St. Louis, but also nationally. We've also had the impact and the ripple effect in the state of Missouri, since I've gone national, international, I've come regional, and we go to the state. Um, we also have seen the weaponization of images of protests and used by such by conservative interests to turn our state which, by the way, I've seen the data, we've invested in the data. Missouri, no matter what anybody tells you, is a more competitive swing state when you look at overall voter turnout. And quite frankly, more Democratic, I don't care if you're Democratic or Republican, just talking about the numbers, than Ohio. So while every four years people are fighting over the swing state of Ohio, this state is more competitive. Now, two things, you say you look at the legislature, how did that happen? Well, that happened because one side got beat in gerrymandering and redistricting, yeah. which is why we got to make sure we got a good, clean count in the 2020 census. When I say we, I mean all of us who are robbed of federal resources, not anybody in any given party. Right? We got to count old people, brown people, black people. We got to count people who are hard to count. Right? But part of what we've seen the impact of is we've seen our state be painted red in the election post-Ferguson where Conservative interests use images of the uprising to scare the hell out of white people and make them vote in a direction that was outside of their interests. And now all of our statewide elected state one are from one party and are deeply conservative, even though overall voter turnout in the state historically is predominantly of the other party. And we saw that before, because in 2014, all but one of the statewide electeds were of the other party. So part of what we've seen also is, you know, as earlier uh, Mike referenced King's last book, uh, Where Do We Go From Here? Uh, part of what King framed very clearly in that book and forecast for us for this moment is that after you see, he said that whites largely were for treating blacks, uh, uh, what is the term? Uh, it was something like kindly or, or uh, civilly. 
but not for treating them equally. Yeah. So part of what has happened is what he described there is that once you see progress, then you see uh, um, a pullback. You see a reaction, a response. So part of what we've seen as well is we have, I, I quite frankly believe, we just got to wrestle with the honesty of this and decide that it's worth it. If there were not an uprising in Ferguson in 2014 that sustained in 2015, and there were not the infrastructure built around Black Lives Matter, movement for Black Lives through 2015 and 16, we may not have had the results that we saw in an election in November of 2016. We've seen a clap back. And we have to wrestle with that as well. Uh, an intersection, a 
And one of the things that we note is that while it was helpful to have black leaders in the center of the intersection, Lafayette in four directions, uh, after a while it became clear that the most helpful place to, for white people to be was on the edges in the crosswalks. So that between the police, the system of oppression, uh, and the black people that sought uh, to stop up oppression just long enough to breathe for me. Akin to Jesus goes into the temple, turned over the tables. In that moment, in the place of collusion between the church and the state, to exploit poor people, while Jesus is turning over the tables and looking all crazy with the whipping stuff, that other Jesus that we don't like to talk about, that, that one moment in Holy Week that we don't have a special service for. Morning, Thursday. Good Friday. I like, it wasn't really Tuesday, but I like calling it turntable too. That someone has to stand on the line between those who are being oppressed and the systems that will come in, rush in, to snatch them for further oppression so that they can breathe for them. So I like to think that's the proper place. It takes different manifestations. For the record, the white people didn't jump there. Black people told them to go stand. So this gets at a few things. Uh, early on in the uh, Early on in the Jesus movement, part of what's going on, Alan Bussack, in his book, um, um, the book that he wrote with Curtis DeYoung, um, uh, about, I can't call the title now, I'm going to call it in a minute, uh, Radical Reconciliation, talks about the necessity of social inversion. The part of what's happening early in the church, the Jesus movement, is people withstanding in society, withstanding in the system, decide to take leadership from people who have been marginalized by the system. This is where we find ourselves. This early movement in the life of the church, taking guidance from these disciples, these Jewish leaders, these largely poor young people who have been marginalized by the state. Those were the people in leadership of the early Jesus movement. And people who had standing and status in the system decided to follow them and do what they said. Those who have been grafted, gifted, or inherited the remuneration of whiteness in America have placed in movements to break down the oppressive systems in America. And part of that place in the context of the church, the model of the early church of social inversion is taking leadership from people who are closer to the issue by virtue of their very life, by virtue of their bodies, by virtue of their economic circumstances, by virtue of how systems have acted upon them. In the same way, and I, I say, Christian folk, this ought to be easy. Because we say we follow a poor, marginalized Jew from the wrong side of the tracks, whose name is Jesus. And if we can follow that dude, 
than following a black, queer, feminist, who, by the way, got a degree from Washington, <laughs> ought not be that hard. I named it that not just Charlene Carruthers, but also Kayla Reed, the director of Action St. Louis, a racial justice organization built on the ground, who just got her degree from Washington University. And on the day of the uprising, she was working as a pharmacy technician. Part of the place is following this marginalized leadership. Part of the place is putting oneself in position between the systems of oppression and people who are being oppressed so that one might breathe. And the other place is signifying these systems, right? We have positions wherever we are, there is an element of this kind of Western, racist, American, oppressive force choking the life out of women, out of children, out of black people, out of brown people, uh, out of poor people. And so wherever we are, we can analyze for that moment and for that time and with the interest of our authorities and position, what is it that I'm here to challenge? Why am I here? You know what I knew? What I knew on November 1st, 2011, when I became the CEO of Deepness Foundation, by the way, the first, this ain't for y'all to clap, so don't clap. I'm going to talk right through you, so don't try to clap this. The first black man to lead an independent philanthropy in this town. Not one that had to serve corporate interests. Not one that served some donor interests. First black man. I knew on November 1, 2011, that I could do this job. Matter of fact, I was raised to believe by my mama, Ella May Wilson, that I could do any job in America if I had six months OJT on the job train. <laughs> I can do anything. Doesn't matter. I don't need the credentials of the world. I can do any job. Give me six months. Right? I knew I could do this job. I didn't know why I was in this job. On August 9, 2014, I understood why I was in this job. And one of the reasons why was in that moment, I'm trying to mock, discern what is the impression that you can respond to in your moment. In this moment in St. Louis's history, it was going to wrestle with this. I've been here 19 years, part of what I inherited when I came here, and it probably been going on 40, probably about 40 years total. How St. Louis resolved its problems that were really challenging was they got somebody whose last name was Danforth. And they partnered them with one of two black people, Jim Buford or Frankie Freeman. And they gave them the really hard stuff. Desegregation of schools, fragmentation of the public health system. And then his name is just somebody named Danford. You need somebody named Danford. He needed one of those two black people. God will address the problem, tell us all what to do. And we'll get the civic interest to line up because they got arms and politics and philanthropy and the corporate world, and we'll figure it out. Now, the problem we had in 2014 is um, those structures had gone away and those elders. Um, we had the position of transitioning into being elders in one sense and ancestors. So who are we going to have? Part of what I realized finally uh, in that moment, board chair that I had, board that I had, independent financial resources, one of the things that they like to do when they have these kind of issues is to get a black person who at some point is going to have to come back to white people and ask them for some money. Yeah. 
get a black person who um, who needs a white person to sign off on them, them being a partner. Get a black person who is going to need a white person to evaluate them yeah. next year for a raise. Yeah. And put that black person in charge. And every now and then, you need to even pull them damn strings. Mm -hmm. And the first time I was offered a role leading this commission, or actually a predecessor of it before the governor called for it, there was an effort to pull together a previous commission. I said, um, this word is in the Bible, so I, I said, hell no. <laughs> I said, I got a future in this town. I might be around here for a while. Y'all ain't gonna do nothing with this, and you ain't gonna set me out to drive. My people thinking, I listen to Mike Jones, one thing Mike Jones always say, see, black preachers in this town need to learn, can't nobody make you a black pastor for black people. Black pastors respond too much to rich white interests in this town. So I said, look, man, I gotta go back and be with my people at some point, so I can't let y'all take my name from me, and now I gotta go back be with my people. So I said, hell no. When it came back around after I'd done some, I'd been agitated enough by the spirit, part of what I recognized is that I had something that a lot of other people didn't. It was permission to speak freely. And so I had to use that. Independent resources behind me. I had to use that in that moment to fight this oppression. And I think part of all of our challenge, including uh, white people, is to figure out what is the challenge that is before you that you are uniquely positioned to attempt to disrupt and work out of that place. <laughs> so we are there at that at that time. I know I could listen to Starsky for a lot longer, and I hope um, you all uh, really enjoyed this forum. Um, really, really, really love this man a whole lot, and admire and respect this man. Mike said earlier that I served as the staff person, support person to the commission because the, the governor asked and the Department of Transportation um, supported me to do it. That's not why I did it. I did it because Starsky was the co-chair. That is the only reason that I went to support this commission because it is important to back people. It is important to show up and to do what you can to, to make sure that people uh, have the resource and know that they are thought about and share the role of the foundation board. So I invite each of you to, to take on that role. I didn't get, didn't get a chance to talk about the next things in the community, Forward through Ferguson, the entity that got created to take the work in the next, next direction. Maybe Shirley will make that an adult forum at one of the events coming up soon. Shirley been out in the back. Who's that person who can make that decision? And so I just want to say thank you all, and please join me in thanking Starsky and you guys.